It's Saturday Breakfast with Julie Reynolds, right across Australia on your local station via the Community Radio Network. Please welcome to the show our very next guest. His name is Gary Mackay. He's a Vietnam vet. He's an MC, historian and non-fiction author. His book is out at the moment. It is called After the Blood Cools, The Warrior's Dilemma. Uh, you can get it now if you go to livinghistorytv.com. Uh, but we have Gary here with us at the moment. So I think we might ask him all about his book, how the book came about and his involvement in the Vietnam War. Thank you and good morning. Thanks for getting up so early. Oh, thanks, Jules. What was your involvement in the Vietnam War? Okay, well, I was conscripted into the army. In Is that like where it was like a lottery, wasn't it? It was a, it was a raffle. Yeah. And uh, it was based on your birthdays. It was called a birthday ballot. And uh, when you were, if you were called up and you passed the medical, you were obliged to serve for two years in the regular army. If you didn't want to do that, you could join the what was then known as the Citizen Military Force, now today known as the Army Reserve, and serve for six years. Well, I tried to avoid the draft because I was a rep footballer and I was also in a very good surf boat crew. And I didn't want to break the crew up, so I thought I'll do the I'll do the reserves. But that only lasted about eighteen months because I had a, a problem with one of the uh, senior guys in the unit I was in. So I thought I'll go into the army for two years, get it over and done with, and ended up staying for thirty years. Wow. Um, so anyway, when I deployed to Vietnam in nineteen seventy one, I was a rifle platoon commander. And that's in the infantry. So it's the pointy end of the spear. And as a 22-year-old second lieutenant, I was the platoon commander of a group of 35 men in a rifle company. And uh, we were, as it turned out, involved in the very last tour of duty. And as it turned out, uh, in September 1971, my platoon, who'd had no casualties in the tour of duty until that point, we were involved in heavy battle with the North Vietnamese and uh, I lost four machine gunners killed that day. My sergeant got wounded and I was also seriously wounded uh, later on that evening. Uh, spent about a year in hospital and then I got out of hospital and I was offered a permanent commission in the army, which I accepted. That is a 22-year-old um, surfer boy who's having the time of his life go from that to what you just described, how do you get your mind to be that person? We had a fantastic training system built on generations of experience from men who'd gone to fight in the First and Second World Wars, especially the Second World War and then our Borneo-Malaya conflict, where uh, when I was selected for officer training, all of the instructors were handpicked. They were outstanding soldiers, and they'd all been to Vietnam. So we were getting all the lessons learned and we were trained very well. And, uh, and that was passed on by the, all the people who'd gone before us. Our training system gets you ready for that. It, it's, uh, it was and still is a very good system. Tough luck for a young man to be living his life and with his mates and having a good time. And suddenly at such a young age, I can remember me at 22, uh, having such responsibility and then losing people. Yeah. You know, the Vietnam War for Australia was highly divisive. Uh, I think the country was basically split down the middle, for and against. 
there were, when we deployed, there were moratorium marches and there was even when I reported for my uh, my induction date, there was a group of mums called Save Our Sons who uh, were quite vocal uh, about their young men going off to war. And uh, by the time I deployed in 71, we knew it was a war that was not going to end well for anybody. We knew it was a war that was not going to be quote, one, unquote, um, by the Allies. And our aim, my sergeant and I got together and we said, our aim is to bring as many back alive as possible. We'll still do our job, but we're not going to be rash about this. We're going to, you know, we're going to take this seriously, but we're going to be careful with how we do it. How do you feel about Vietnam, knowing that was your first introduction to the country? Oh, uh, look at Julie, it goes all the way back to the end of the Second World War. Japan occupied parts of Vietnam uh, when they kicked the French out. And then at the end of the Second World War, when colonialism was supposed to be ending around the globe, the French decided that they would go back and retain their power as a colonial power in Vietnam. Well, what erupted out of that was what the Vietnamese called the French War, which ended in 1953 at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, and, and they were all gone by 1954. And then, of course, communism was on the rise around the globe. The British had pulled out east of Suez in the late 50s, and so there was this power vacuum in our sphere of influence. And we actually asked us asked the Americans to ask the Vietnam, South Vietnamese to invite us into the conflict so that we could have an insurance policy through Big Brother, the United States, in our area. So when I look back on Vietnam, my perspective is that it was the American War, as, a, as they call it, was really a civil war. And if Ho Chi Minh had not elected to use communism as his vehicle for nationalism, then it would have been a different kettle of fish. That's how I look back on it. When I go back and meet former Viet Cong and North Vietnamese, well, I have a good rapport with them because we we can both see that we're only doing what our governments were telling us to do. And because of the way the Australians conducted themselves during the Vietnam War, we have a lot of street cred as being good, hard fighters who did not commit atrocities and who try to do something for the people of South Vietnam. And, and so there's no animosity or angst when they find out you're a former soldier. It's a great relationship. And I've got some pretty good friends there today. You would have to have some kind of PTSD of being shot at, let alone being shot. So it, it, it just seems an unreal situation for any Australian boy to be put in. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, post-traumatic stress because that's what the latest book is actually about. I called the book uh, The Warrior's Dilemma uh, because, you know, we send people like to Iraq or Afghanistan. We put them in harm's way in a seriously abnormal environment where people are trying to kill each other. And then they come back home and I guess people sort of expect them to be okay that they will just merge back in and get on with their life like they did before they deployed. 
well, we found out after the First World War that men had, quote, battle shock or battle fatigue mm. or shell shock, as they called it, then battle fatigue in the Second World War. And now we identify it as post-traumatic stress. And it doesn't have to be from combat. I mean, firefighters get it, police get it, ambulance people get it. Anyone who's a first responder is always suspect to being to getting it. And so the dilemma is um, you go into that environment, then you come back. For me personally, I didn't get post-traumatic stress or I wasn't diagnosed with it until 2004, which was 33 years after the event. And I was in Vietnam. And uh, to go to a battle site, you need a, a special permit and because they're regarded as sensitive sites. And I was up at a place called Canyuen, where fire support base Coral and Belmoral were, and we had a month-long battle up there in 1968. Well, there was a policeman, a field force policeman up there who didn't like Caucasians, and he threw me in jail at gunpoint for the day because my permit was not as good as it should have been even though it was issued by people in Hanoi. Anyway, uh, when I came back to Australia after spending the day in jail uh, and out of cell phone range from Saigon, I started having nightmares. Long story cut short, I saw a psychiatrist then a clinical psychologist, and it took me about four or five months to build a bridge and get over it. That was my... And I didn't really believe that post-traumatic stress was as widespread as I thought it was. I thought... People who said they had PTSD were swinging the lead, trying to get a pension out of DVA and so on until it happened to me. Mm. And when the black dog walked in the room and I went, gee, uh, hang on, this is a bit different. And so I'm now a lot more open and aware of what post-traumatic stress is. So those sort of things impact differently. On, we're all different. So you can have guys who are severely traumatised by what they see on the field of battle and others who cope with it through different mechanisms. And, and that was really the rationale behind the book. Whenever you talk about, you know, somebody who served for Australia, everybody's got a story of the relative or, you know, in your case yourself. But I think, you know, my dad, he was in the Second World War. My uncle was in the Second World War and he was in the uh, the Air Force and he was in New Guinea and he saw some terrible things, but he never talked about it. And I think that was the thing, wasn't it? You just never talked about it. Well, you know, how many times have you heard people talking about someone from the Western Front, the First World War, the war to end all wars, saying, oh, my grandfather was there, uh, but he never talked about it. Well, when you look at what it was all about, why would you talk about it? Why would you go back in your head and revisit those horrors? My mum and dad uh, were both in the army during the Second World War. Mum was a telegraphist, you know, Morse code operator. Yep. And then she was also in Victoria Barracks. That's where mum and dad met. And then they went their separate ways. And my dad was like your dad. He ended up in, up in Darwin when it got bombed. And uh, mum ended up serving on Rottnest Island. And, uh, I don't think she had a tough walk because all the photos of her, she's in a swimming cozies yeah, on the beach. Her, her and the quokkas. <laughs> but Dad's two elder brothers both saw, served overseas and uh, my Uncle Bob was a commando in Bougainville and a few other places during the Second World War. And when I got conscripted and then he found out I was going to Vietnam, 
he said, um, but you're a Nasho, you don't have to go, do you? Because a lot of people think that they had to, they can elect not to go. And I said, yeah, I'm going to go. He said, uh, quote, want to see if you can cut the mustard, do you? Unquote. And he was right, Julie. He was right because when you're 22 years of age, full of testosterone, you've been trained to do a job. If you don't go, it's like sitting on the sideline and watching a grand final. Now, that sounds a bit flippant, but it really does sum up the way a lot of guys. Like, I, I had one guy in my platoon who was a national serviceman before we went, who was a Christian and probably one of the few men in the battalion that actually went to church on Sundays. And he didn't want to go to Vietnam because he was afraid he'd let his mates down and when he should be taking someone's life and he wouldn't. Mm. And so and so we put him in a clerical job and everyone respected him for his beliefs and no one took the mickey out of him or anything like that. But, you know, half of the platoon I served with in Vietnam, a national service, we get together every couple of years and have a platoon reunion, which I think is one of the great contributing factors for my guys dealing with their post-traumatic stress because we've got each other to lean on. They have a bond with each other, with the regs, their, their mates from their different sections, and they draw on each other's strengths to get through it. We're doing enough for people who uh, come out of a situation like this? If you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I'd have said definitely not, but they're getting better. They are doing more now. We've, we've now got a plethora of associations and organisations that are lending support. The big thing to do is to debrief people when they come back. And even if they haven't done it, it's still not too late to do it. If they've done the ultimate part of what their job was to do over there, such as yourself, there would be a lot of guilt associated with that when you are trying to return back to normal life. Because at the time, you would be quite confident that you had no choice. But once you're sitting back at your own place and you're going to Pizza Hut on Sunday nights and trying to get back into your normal routine and life, I would imagine that's where the disparity would occur because you're not in it anymore. That's correct. And uh, it is a big part. The problem is, Julie, that when you are in combat, and in my case, the engagement ranges were less than a cricket pitch, right? And you can see the other guy's face. You can, you can turn around and see what happens to your own soldiers when they get hit. And those images never leave you. And you've just got to find a system, like I was taught, for getting those images and filing them away somewhere at the back, and you don't really need to call them up unless you need to. And uh, that is something that stays with you. And you need to be taught how to deal with that. And that's, that's very important. How many Australians went to war, do you know, Vietnam Vietnam War? 54,000, roughly. That's and all. That's Army, Navy, Air Force. Can you believe that it was 60 years ago? <laughs> it's 50 years since I was there. Because of those images I was talking about, it feels like yesterday. But, I mean, I was doing my intermediate high school when the Australian Army training team deployed at the end of July. And there were only 30 men, but they were all senior. And when I say senior, they were captains, majors and warrant officers. So they were all experienced soldiers and a lot of them had served in Korea and Borneo and Malaya and they took those skills with them to help the South Vietnamese and of course the training team which didn't pull out until 10 years later 
31st of December, 72, was when they pulled out. They became the most decorated unit in Vietnam. But no, 60 years. Gary Mackay, your new book is called After the Blood Calls, The Warrior's Dilemma. Even though I've got relatives who all served, I cannot put myself in your place. Thank you so much for just shedding a bit of light on um, what it's like as a person who did serve over in Vietnam as we mark the 60th anniversary of Australia in the Vietnam War. Thanks, Julie. Across Australia, you're listening to Saturday Breakfast with Julie Reynolds on your local station via the Community Radio Network.